from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So it's a huge driver of, of mass incarceration, especially when these are for things that are minor, you know, that don't harm anybody. 12 years, I'm thinking that that's kind of unconscionable to, to the average person. I mean, when, is, when does the healing process begin? At, at what point? Almost all of her life, this yes. is something where her father has been in prison. Yes. I, I imagine that's been really hard for her. It's been very hard. She loves her father. She misses her father greatly. She can't wait for him to come home. I'm Sarah Fenske. Terrell Robinson was a 17-year-old living in St. Louis when he was arrested for first-degree assault on a police officer and first-degree robbery. He was convicted and sentenced to 50 years in prison. Now, he was released on parole after 20 years in prison, but his parole was revoked less than two years later, and he's now spent another 12 years in prison. He says no one ever explained what exactly he did while he was out on parole, and he has never been given a chance to defend himself, much less bring in a lawyer to make his case. I wasn't aware of some of the things that I know now in terms of me being afforded an attorney. So uh, my, my revocation papers, you know, to this day, you know, like nobody has been able to ascertain what exactly are you violating me for. Now, during his two years outside prison, Terrell Robinson attended Vatterock College to learn how to repair heating and cooling units. He helped teach youth boxing at a local gym. He admits that he drank beer and smoked marijuana, and that did lead to a parole violation. He was ordered to begin electronic alcohol monitoring. But before he could do so, he was arrested and sent back to prison. No one explained why, much less that he'd be there for more than a decade. At the end of the day... I drank a beer and I smoked marijuana. Was that uh, germane to getting a violation? Yes, but nobody has been able to tell me that this is exactly what I'm violated for. Now, Terrell Robinson told our producer that he knew something felt off when he was rearrested. He didn't know enough about the law to know his rights. I was really naive and unexperienced of the, of the law and the system. Any average 17-year-old that hasn't had any experience at all or experience in the judicial system or whatnot, uh, and he do 20-some years in, the, in, the, in an adult system, uh, he's prone to, at some point, make some type of mistakes. But, I mean, I understand that that's not an excuse, but I'm talking about the harsh reality. Now, Terrell Robinson remains in prison today. He spoke with our producer, Kayla Drake, from the Eastern Correctional Center in Bonterre, and Terrell has now been denied parole four times. I'm being denied for something that I have no knowledge of how to get on top of or how to rectify. I mean, what do you want out of me? That's, you know, what is it that I need to bring to the table? Because parole violation is a, is a parole violation. I mean... It happens. Um, I'm not the only case that it happens like that, but, you know, 12 years, I'm 
thinking that that's kind of unconscionable to a, to the average person. I mean, when is, when does the healing process begin? At, at what point? And that is Terrell Robinson speaking to our producer from prison in Bonterre. Terrell now has two grandchildren. He says he misses his family, and he wants to be released on parole so he can restart his life. And joining us now with more on his case is Terrell's wife, Lawanda Robinson. Lawanda, welcome. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined today by Amy Bryan. She's the co-director of the MacArthur Justice Center. She's been fighting a class action lawsuit against Missouri's parole system and also recently filed a lawsuit in Terrell's individual case. Amy, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, Amy, there's a lot of big picture stuff to talk here, but I want to talk first about this petition of habeas corpus that the MacArthur Justice Center filed in Terrell's case. What are you alleging here? Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Um, So the gist of it is that Terrell Robinson has been incarcerated, as he shared with us, for over 12 years on alleged technical parole violations, which are still unclear to this day. But because of the process he went through when his parole was revoked over a decade ago, his incarceration is unconstitutional. That's because he wasn't notified of his rights or provided evidence that basically there are these cases from the 70s that make very clear what parole authorities have to do to make sure the process is fair before you take away someone's liberty. And they didn't do that in Terrell's case, like in so many others. So we might think of parole as this is a privilege. This isn't something you have a right to do. But you're saying the Supreme Court has been clear on this. Like, if you're going to take this away from somebody, you have to go through certain processes. Right. So in 1972, the Supreme Court acknowledge that when you take away somebody's parole supervision and you reincarcerate them, you inflict a grievous loss, not just on them, but also on others, you know, their family, their friends, their communities, you completely disrupt their life. And so if you're going to do that, you need to make sure that you're putting them through a process that's fair, apprises them of their rights, and gives them an opportunity to confront the evidence against them, and also explores alternatives to incarceration that keeps folks in the community. And that did not happen in this case. So Lawanda, we talk about being separated from family. 12 years is a long time to be separated from family. Tell us just a little bit about your family. You guys have known each other a long time. Yes, we have known each other a long time. We've known each other since we was kids. I was 15, he was 16. And, you know, being, him being incarcerated for so long, I mean, it, it did put an impact on our family, on raising our daughter. And, you know, you know, it, it put to him, made a little toll on her. But it's just talking to him on the phone and getting his insight on helping out in the, way, in the best way he can on raising our child. I mean, yes, it's been a long process. <laughs> and your daughter, uh, she's actually here today in yes, our green room. Sure. Uh, how old is your daughter today? She's 33. And so for most, almost all of her life, this yes. is something where her father has been in prison. Yes. I, I imagine that's been really hard for her. It's been very hard. She loves her father. She misses her father greatly. She can't wait for him to come home. They can, they can better their relationship, get closer as mother, father and daughter do, but they have a great relationship right now. And this, I'm sure, has been hard for you, too. I mean, 12 years. 12 years is a long time. And, you know, the, you know, just be sitting and waiting on your husband to come home. It's yeah. a very long time, and you, you get lonely, but we talk through it, and we, we get through it, and we come to, 
you know, agreements and, you know, we meet each other halfway. So it's, it's working out. It's, 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 it's getting, you know, we work, we're making it work. You're making it work. Yeah. So, Amy, you would like them to not have to keep making it work. <laughs> you want to come up with a, a better long-term solution here. What relief are you seeking in this lawsuit you filed on Terrell's behalf? It's actually pretty simple. We're asking them to release him from prison. Let him serve out the rest of his sentence, it was about 17 years, I believe, on parole supervision and rejoin his family and his community. So is there a chance that they're going to respond to this and they're going to say, okay, now we're going to come up with all this paperwork. We're going to show you what happened 12 years ago. Try to call some witnesses if you want to contest this. Well, they, they will have to respond. The So the Department of Corrections is going to have to respond at the end of May. And I'll be interested to see what they say because we requested records from the Division of Probation and Parole. And we got multiple field violation reports, most of which Mr. Robinson did not himself receive. But even looking through those records, as uh, lawyers who have litigated these issues for years and are familiar with the process, we could not decipher why his parole was revoked and why he was sent back to prison. So we should mention here something that you acknowledge in this lawsuit. At the point when he was out on parole, he was arrested twice, um, but he was not charged or convicted for those crimes. If this system was working the way that it should have worked, how would something like this, if that's what they wanted to revoke it for, what would they have had to do in that case? Um, well, if you're revoking somebody for a violation of their condition of parole, they're supposed to have interviews with their parole officer. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to receive uh, an explanation of the uh, you know alleged basis for the violation of parole. And they're supposed to be offered a couple different hearings, a preliminary hearing and a revocation hearing as an opportunity to present evidence um, you know, either against the violation or mitigating evidence that says even if I committed this violation, even if I drank this beer, here's why it would be better for me to stay out of prison rather than go back behind bars. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, you know, there are certain basic due process rights that the Division of Probation and Parole is supposed to comply with, and, and they didn't. And so from you looking at this record, um, you can't see, you know, these steps have not been followed. You can't even tell what he was being accused of at the point when they yanked this probation. That's right. I mean, the file should at the very least have had an order of revocation that would say your parole is revoked and here is why. Mm -hmm. It didn't. Uh, I should say, even if it did, those forms are typically so bare bones that you really can't get much information from them anyway. They're deficient. And even the Department of Corrections admitted that the way that they have been operating the parole revocation system historically is unconstitutional. So for Terrell, I mean, he's sort of put back in prison. I imagine when this happened 12 years ago, he's probably thinking, okay, this is a relatively short thing. I'm just going to be back in here for a little while. What's that been like as sort of days have turned to weeks, have turned to months, have now turned to more than a decade? Well, it's been a long, lonely process, actually, yes. But, you know, just we have to hang in there we, as husband and wife who were married we made a vibe with each other to you know do whatever it takes for us to you know keep our family together yeah and yes. you're doing that we're doing that yes we are and we want to continue to do that so, Amy, this is part of a much bigger problem. Um, you have this individual lawsuit now you're pursuing on behalf of Terrell Robinson, but a few years back, the MacArthur Justice Center filed a class action lawsuit against the Missouri parole system. Is that related to what we see happening to Terrell Robinson in this case we're talking about today? It is. M Mr. Robinson's case is a textbook example of 
the deficiencies in the parole revocation system and why they matter, you know, because they separate a husband and wife. They separate parents from children. They, do, you know, disrupt communities. So the very problems that we saw with Mr. Robinson's parole revocation process are the problems that were highlighted in that class action. Not being advised of the right to counsel, not evidence not being disclosed of the alleged violations, folks being pressured to waive hearings or not being advised of their rights to hearings, basic do you know basic fairness being um, withheld from from folks when they're being sent back to prison potentially for decades and do you have a sense of just how many people in Missouri um, have been subject to what you see as, as these unconstitutional violations of how this is supposed to work well there are uh, approximately 15,000 people in the state of Missouri who are on parole supervision so any one of them any day could be subject to this uh, at the time we filed that class action lawsuit um, there were about 6600 folks, so 6,600 people every year sent back to prison on parole violations. Now, um, in the last year, between March 2020 and March 2021, that number was lower, but still over 2,200 people in the middle of a pandemic, in the height of a pandemic, Mm -hmm. who were having their parole revoked, hundreds of those just for technical violations, which means they didn't commit a crime. They maybe drank a beer or they failed to report to their PO. I even saw someone who had a violation because they traveled out of state. They lived in Kansas City, Missouri, and they went to work in Kansas City, Kansas, and they got a violation for that. My jaw just dropped on that. I mean, that it seems like this is giving uh, the parole officers or giving this system so much discretion that if they want to find a way to throw the book at somebody and send them back into prison, they could maybe always find a way to do that. Absolutely. And without due process in place to be a check on that system, it's it's very easy to just, you know, rubber stamp things and and totally change someone's course, you know, life course of their life in a five minutes. So statistically, um, on average, around half of parolees every year who return to prison do so on parole violations rather than a new sentence. How does that tie into the problem of mass incarceration in this country? I think historically parole has been overlooked when we're we're talking about the problem of mass incarceration, but you're right. You know, Anywhere between a third and a half of new admissions to prison come from folks having their parole revoked. So it's a huge driver of of mass incarceration, especially when these are for things that are minor, you know, that don't harm anybody. And, you know, there are better ways to address issues that keep folks in the community and are less disruptive and are better for everyone long term than just reincarcerating them and contributing to the, you know, uh, mass incarceration problem that we've got. We're talking today to Amy Bryan. She's the co-director of the MacArthur Justice Center. It's been fighting a class action lawsuit against Missouri's parole system. She's also uh, fighting a lawsuit on behalf of Terrell Robinson. He has spent uh, more than 12 years in prison on a parole violation, has been trying to get out, get back to his family. We're joined today also by his wife, LaWanda Robinson, who is here fighting for him um, and is trying to make this work for her family, despite this system being the way that it is. Um, LaWanda, you go see Terrell twice a week. This is on Monday and Friday. This is an hour and 15-minute drive for you. Yes, I do. I go see my husband twice a week, um, Monday and Friday, Monday morning, Friday evenings. Yeah, it's only an hour 
15 minutes away that's you know that's no problem with me but whatever it takes to to hold my family together get my family keep my family together that's what i'm going to do and when you're as a wife when you're there visiting him are you able to you know be together the way that we would be together if with any spouse at a, at a restaurant table no not as not at all it's mm-hmm. nothing like being together at like at a table with a spouse. I mean, it's, you know, it's certain rules that I, the guy buys, we have to go by. We, you know, we can't touch each other. We have to just sit there and talk. We may be able to play a card game or, you know, any type of board game. We can sit there and play, but for us embracing each other, touching each other, you know, we no, it's not allowed at all. So it's not really, you know, I mean, it's something that, you know, but just to sit there and be with him and talk with him, um, it's, 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 a, it's a pleasurable thing for us right now because yeah. that's the only thing we can do at the time. It's worth it for you even yes, with those restrictions. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. I imagine, though, I mean, you know, this is your chance to talk and you're in a room where people are watching you. And if you try to get, you know, if yeah, they feel like you're getting too close, they can tell you back off. That's right. Yeah, we're in a room full of people, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of people, you know, everybody's in one room at a table, you know, we just... You can't touch. You just sit there. We look at look at each other. That's fine with me, as long yeah. as I can see my husband and talk with my husband. You know, that's that's good good with me. Amy, I feel like I would not be quite so zen if I was in Luanda's shoes here. Well, I, she's an amazing person, and so is Terrell. It's yeah. just a privilege to to be getting to know them and, and advocate on their behalf. So uh, let's look at this bigger picture here. You have this class action lawsuit. This was filed back. What is this? Five years ago at this point. That's right. So where do things stand today? What has happened with this lawsuit? Essentially, we're in a waiting period. Uh, we won the lawsuit. We won a sweeping 52-page order that uh, required a number of changes to be made to the system. And then the state appealed that to the Eighth Circuit. And we argued the case back in November. And now we're just waiting for the Eighth Circuit to issue a decision about whether we get this relief or it goes back to the district court. So this was uh, Judge Stephen Boo, who's there at the federal court here in St. Louis. What did he find in his ruling? Well, his order was actually really fantastic in in large part, in my opinion, because it credited the testimony of class members who we had come to testify. In June 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, Mm -hmm. we had folks willing to to stand up and come testify in federal court about how unfair the process was and how it impacted them. And so he found that the vast majority of folks, 83 percent, were being encouraged to waive hearings, Mm. that they weren't being apprised of their right to counsel, they weren't being screened for counsel, they weren't being provided notice of the violations, that hearings were not happening in a timely manner, so that you you could go to jail, be arrested, and end up having your parole not revoked, but you spent 120 days in prison, and you may as well have, because you lost your job, maybe lost your apartment, is really disruptive. Um, And so he ordered a number of changes to the system. One of the biggest bones of contention is about the right to counsel and who's obligation it is to actually make sure those attorneys show up. And so is that something that is still um, a subject of litigation at this point, even beyond what the Eighth Circuit is doing? It is. You know, ideally, the Department of Corrections, who admitted liability in the case, would have implemented these changes um, despite the appeal, but they sought an order staying that remedial order. So it's not actually in place yet. It's not in effect. Um, they are working with the public defender now to provide representation to some individuals, but that is um, certainly not, uh, you know, has not fully 
corrected the problem there. Not everybody is getting a lawyer as they're dealing with these kind of hearings. Correct. So for Terrell, he is now trying to get back out. Um, has what Judge Boo ordered, has that had any impact on his case at this point? It hasn't. Um, you know, that order is really forward facing. And so it, if the Eighth Circuit affirms, then folks who go through the revocation process in the future will have the benefit of the remedy that was ordered in that case. Unfortunately, it doesn't do much to help Terrell, who went through that process over a decade ago. And so there could be other people sitting there for more than a decade trying to get a chance to get out again. And this this situation, even though this class action is going to lead to some big changes, it wouldn't even address those. I think it's safe to say there are thousands of people who are probably behind bars who had these same due process issues in their revocation system, too, and they might not even be aware of it. So when our producer, Kayla Drake, spoke to Terrell in prison, at that point he was fasting for Ramadan. Uh, Terrell says his petition couldn't have come at a better time for him other than this holy month. And he said that he's forever grateful to the MacArthur justice system for taking his case. I follow a God that I think has the power to move and do anything that he chooses to do. So... I try to find my strength in that as much as I can, like, you know, and I'm just taking it all in, man, that everything is for a reason, and this is one of the lessons that I got to overcome. And Terrell also told Kayla that he believes this class action lawsuit, even though it won't help him, that it will improve lives. It could help people caught up in the justice system get a true second chance. Correct those errors, then I think that people would get the proper due process that they deserve, or, or what the United States Constitution affords us, or whatnot. And I think that uh, it give a lot of people like myself an opportunity to learn from their mistakes and move on. And that is Terrell Robinson. He is speaking from the prison where he uh, talked to our producer, Kayla Drake. And Lawanda, that's your husband there, hearing him talk about that. Um, what strikes you just hearing his remarks? Well, um, my husband, he, um, he's, a very, he's very into his, his religion. And um, he, he seems like he's a very humble man. And he knows, well, more what he's talking about and that he knows some of the law but you know he's just you know very like I said he's a very humble man and he's you know he's a very good man and he deserves to have a, another chance and come home to his family to have come home to his family. Mm-hmm. So Amy there's um, a lot pending here on several different fronts what's the thought you'd want to leave us with today as, as we're thinking about these issues? Well I just hope that folks don't lose sight of two things. One is um, how important uh, an issue parole is in terms of the criminal legal system. And we talk a lot about like pretrial release and bail and, and you know, over-sentencing and parole plays a big part in driving prison populations. And two, I want folks to, you know, keep in mind that these aren't just legal issues and, and lawsuits, that they're stories about you know, members of our community and our neighbors and people and families. Um, And a lot of times our clients who are primarily incarcerated folks get kind of, you know, demonized or just referred to as offenders and, you know, their worst act rather than, you know, the whole people that they are and the wonderful people that they are. Mm -hmm. And Lawanda, you'll be driving there uh, today. This is Friday. You always go on Friday. And today your daughter Sherelle is is able to come with you. She lives in Florida. She'll be here for that. How much are you looking forward to that? Oh, we really look. It's it's very exciting to have the whole family to come together and to sit at one table and be together for 
for a long due process that we long do <laughs> have been waiting for for a long time and it's, it's very exciting i know them, the grandbabies can't wait to see them <laughs> Well, Luanda Robinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Amy Bryan, thank you for joining us. Thanks. And Amy is the co-director of the MacArthur Justice Center, which is uh, pursuing both of these legal cases. This episode was produced by Kayla Drake with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.